Okay, first of all, welcome everyone. Those of you who have just joined us today, those of you who have been here before, uh, continue to welcome. A special welcome to my parents for joining us. Mom, special welcome. Ritz Hashem, we'll discuss Shira Shira as we try every year. Tackle a different angle of this beautiful and obviously surpassing work. Kodesh HaKadoshin, Shira Shira. Today I'd like to discuss not the content, or the interaction between the literary content or Chazal's losses, but the style. What are the techniques of conveying this content? There's some very unique, almost um, one-off literary devices that almost don't appear anywhere else in Tanakh. And more importantly, why are these devices important? How do these devices facilitate the conveyance of this very deep message? And then, of course, as we do every year, we'll conclude with the story of Radhamita, uh, the dark side was a test writing, and obviously this event every week is a testament to the Shiva that he built in Pioneer and his vision <coughs> about the study of Tanakh. Shira Shirin is an intriguing title for the Sefer. It's a duplication, the same word. It is a transition from singular to plural, Shira Shirin. Of course, it refers to the surpassing nature that it evokes. Of course, it didn't evoke because it predates through the Akiva's famous statement. Commissioning Medayim records the debate which took place in the Beit Medrash as to which books of Scripture should be canonized as part of the 24. There were debates about Koheles, there were debates about Esther, there were some debates about Shir Hashir. You could well imagine it's a bit provocative. And the topic is very elusive. And the Akiva entered the Beit Medrash and claims no one doubts that Shir Hashir is canonized. There was never a day as great as the day that Shir Hashirim was penned. All the Svarim are Kodesh. Shir Hashirim is Kodesh Kadashim. And of course, you can keep us playing off with Shir Hashirim, Kodesh Kadashim. It's not just holy, it's a surpassing holiness. It's not just the Shir, it's a surpassing Shir. But there's no doubt that Shir Hashirim doesn't just connote that it's surpassing, but it also connotes that there's a multiplicity of voices. This isn't a one-dimensional or single-layered song or story. How does this multiplicity express itself? On the one hand, there are four poems. And just as a way of introduction, the four poems don't necessarily parallel the section breaks, the parashios, and they certainly don't parallel the prakim. Each poem, there are four poems and then the afterword, each poem is concluded by the chorus. The chorus in Shir Hashirim are the oaths. Hishbati Yeschem Menos Yushalayim. Hishbati Yeschem Menos Yushalayim. There are three appearances, and they cordon off the four poems. A, first chorus. B, second chorus. C, third chorus. And then poem number four, and then the afterword, the wrap-up show, as we would say. So if you have your Tanakh, just to get a sense of the lay of the land and the landscape, the first poem, which is the poem of longing, and of wistfulness, concludes Perak Bey's Pasuk Zayin, Ishbati Yeschem Benos Yushalayim. You may want to put the number one alongside of that section. Shir Hashim was on page Kuf Memtes in the Orange Tanakhs. Kuf Memtes, the Hebrew pagination. The second poem is not a poem of longing, but a poem of the wedding, or the preparations for the wedding. That poem continues through Perak Bey's, through Perak Gimel, it concludes Perak Gimel Pasakei once again. Hishbati Yeschem Benos Yushalayim. So the first poem is the poem of longing. Second poem is the wedding. The third poem 
probably the most dramatic, is the poem of betrayal, the poem of frustrated expectations that starts with Paragimel Pusik Vav. It runs through the very dramatic scene where the knock on the door is unanswered. That's the betrayal. Koldo Dido Fake. And it concludes with Parakei Pasaches, once again the chorus, Hishbati Eschem Benos Yushalayim. And then the fourth song runs more or less through the end of the Sefer until the afterward. So it's a Shir Hashirim because there are multiple poems. The first poem is the poem of longing, once again. The second is the poem of the wedding and the betrothal. It's not clear whether it's a consummated wedding or a staged but possibly stunted wedding. The third is the great betrayal. And the fourth is the search for renewal, the poem of renewal. So it's a book which contains many poems. Each poem has its own style, its own content, its own interaction, its own setting, its own set of imageries. It's almost as if you have four books collapsed into one. It's also a poem with different perspectives. And Chazal sensed this already. Let's take a look at how Chazal sensed this. It's called multi-perspectivity, different perspectives on the same event. Source number one. Bechol Shirim, this is the Shir Hashirim, the Medrash, Ohu Mekalsan, Ohe Mekalsin. It's unilateral. There is one individual speaking, praising, singing, expressing love for another. It could be Beshiras Moshe, Adaz Yashir, Hey Mekalsin, or so. We praise and thank HaKadosh Baruch Hu, Zeki Livian Veyo Hashem Mishmiel Chama Hashem is quiet. In the praise of Moshe, in Parshas Hazinu, so Moshe and by extension HaKadosh Baruch Hu are praising the Jewish people. So most songs in Tanakh are unilateral. There's a singer, there's a praiser expressing their love and admiration, and there's the subject of that admiration. Shir Shirim is an interaction between male and female, between husband and wife. It's a courtship. There's communication. We'll see exactly what type of communication. So in this Shir Chazal sense, Bram Hacha, that last line of source one, Hey Mikalsin so. We praise Hashem, namely the woman praises and longs for the man, and the man searches and petitions the woman. So there are the perspectives of the male and the perspectives of the woman, but it doesn't stop there. It's not just bilateral, it's multi-layered. There are many secondary figures who ascend the stage. Certainly the Benos Yushalayim, which I mentioned before, are not anecdotal to the story. They refer metaphorically to angels, they refer metaphorically to the nations of the world, primarily. We'll see why that's so important in the historical process. Last year, I spoke about the Watchmen. I don't know if anyone here was in this year. And what role the Watchmen play. And the Watchmen transformed from very amiable, helpful, considerate, after that first sojourn into the night. And during that second excursion into the night, they become militant and hostile. And why did the Watchmen transform? But they're standing on stage, and presumably some of the interaction occurs between the principal players and the Shomrim, Matsuni HaShomrim, Hikuni Ptsoni, Nasus Ridim Eli. And then, of course, there are spectators, and they never emerge. We don't know their identity, but they're clearly present, somehow watching the scene, and we see the scene through their eyes. So, for example, in the third, in the third song, okay, this is uh, the beginning of the third song, Paragimel Pasak Vav, Mizos Olam Min Hamidbar. Who is that woman ascending from the desert? Kitimros Hashan. As a pillar of smoke, very aromatic, sweet smelling, and then they also witness the very tightly protected bed of Shlomo. Battle to the teeth. So those spectators also provide perspective. So it's Shir Shirim for several reasons. 
It shared, there are sources outside if anyone came in late. Number one, because there are four poems. Once again, the poem of longing, the poem of marriage, the poem of betrayal, and the poem of renewal. And there's a multi-perspectivity where you see the events from different angles and different perspectives. That is not what I will speak about today, Meretisha. There's a third multiplicity in Shir Hashir. It's not just a book of many poems or a book of many perspectives, but it's a book of many different literary devices to convey these conversations. And I want to focus on what are the unique literary devices? What's a, what's a classic literary device? Most novels are written this way. Certainly most of Tanakh, Amishachim Shitar is written this way. So we refer to it in English as the omniscient narrator. There's a narrator who's narrating the story, who knows all the events, all the timelines, presumably is also aware of inner thoughts of the participants and the characters, and he or she conveys that information. They're omniscient. They're omnipresent. Sometimes it's an omniscient third person. It's a detached person relating the events. Sometimes it's an omniscient first person, a person that's undergoing the experiences. Most of the Torah is written in omniscient narration. Devarim more or less is a soliloquy. Moshe Rabbeinu is a long soliloquy. He stands in front of the people and he conveys information extensively. Shir Hashirim, of course, contains neither of those. Much of Tanakh, much of the prophecies, soliloquies. Shir Hashirim contains no omniscient narration. There's no narrator. There's no one helping us to determine the timelines, the events, the interaction, the identities. There's very little soliloquies. There are, there are some. We would expect that Shir Hashirim, as it's a courtship and a communication, to be dominated by communication, by interaction. Various personalities, primarily the husband and the wife, the secondary figures I mentioned before, to be speaking to one another. And yet, surprisingly, there's very little classic communication. And that's really the core of today's Shia. What type of communication occurs in Shia Shirim? Why is it conveyed in such an irregular manner? And more importantly, not just to identify the literary tropes or the literary techniques, but how does that support? How does that, how does that um, reinforce the core messages of Shir Hashir. So the truth is, there is communication at some level. It's just a little bit strange and distant. So for example, in the very beginning of Shir Hashirim, Mashcheni Acharecha Narutza. The woman is at a distance, soliciting the male, the husband, draw me. I want to follow you. Presumably they're not in the same location. She's inviting him. We'll see who she's speaking with. A little bit later on, the same, the same factor. Um, if you take a look at his invitation, source, uh, Perak, um, where Perak Dalit Pasaches. Iti milavanon kala. My bride, come with me from Livanon. Iti milavanon tavoi. Tashiri merosh amana. Let's sing on the top of the mountains. Merosh near vechermon. So there is communication, but they're not necessarily facing one another. It's, distant and disconnected communication. Now that's a very important shift. That's a very important um, reworking of classic communication. There are two ways to decipher Shir Hashir, written large. The most popular way to decipher Shir Hashir is that it's a national historical trajectory. The Jewish people enter this romance with HaKadosh Baruch Hu, the golden era of Yitzhak Mitzrayim. They failed miserably, forfeiting all that love and affection, and the rest of history has been an attempt to reconvene and reconstitute those lost glory days, those bygone days. And we search for Hashem through the hills of history, and he searches for us through the deserts of time, and our timing is always off, and we're trying to rendezvous with HaKadosh Baruch Hu, 
and close history. Rabbi Soloveitchik, the Rambam certainly, at certain points, viewed the deciphering of Shir Shir not through a national lens, but through a universal lens. Human beings, man, individuals, searching for the other being, trying to locate, trying to identify Kaddish Baruch Hu in our world, but being limited by the empirical, flawed, finite reality that man inhabits and trying to locate some mystical other who transcends time and transcends human definition. If those of you who have read Uvikash Dem Misham, this is Rabbi Soloveitchik's development of Shir Hashirim as a description of man longing and searching for HaKadosh Baruch Either of those narratives are basically futile, at least within history, until divine intervention closes history and re-landscapes human experience and introduces HaKadosh Baruch into our world. Certainly man's search for HaKadosh Baruch Hu, as I mentioned before, is, is, is a discrepancy. There's a discrepancy that flusters, that baffles that pursuit. I'm limited. The tools that I have available are human conventions. I, I can try, I can begin to approximate, but I can't reach HaKadosh Baruch Hu, who transcends time and place and is infinite, and there's no human term that even can apply to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. There's no human word. And of course, in the national arena, that process is challenged not just by the limitations of mortal and flawed man, but by national failures and mutinies and breakdowns, Egel, Miraglim. And that's at the core of Shir Hashim. The core of Shir Hashim is that there's a distance between, I'll, I'll just take the national approach because that's the dominant one, there's a distance that's almost unbridgeable between Am Yisrael and HaKadosh Baruch Hu. As much as we try to bridge that distance, there are basic disparities that just pre-exist this pursuit. And you sense that very powerfully in the first song. The landscape and the imaginary landscape of the woman is completely different than the world which her husband inhabits or her husband-to-be. She's a country bumpkin. She lives a rustic lifestyle. She inhabits Carme Engedi. She lives in Engedi. She's a rustic, bucolic woman, doesn't know of palaces, of gold, of silver. All of her metaphors, all of her imageries are very pastoral. Don't look at me, I'm as black as the tents of Shlomo. Like the tarps of Shlomo. She's a woman who lives in a tent. She employs tarps to cover herself from the sun. My brothers have afflicted me. They've ruined my vineyard. Her entire mindset is about tents and tarps and vineyards. And when she searches for her husband, she says, she says, Hagidali, Pasuk Zayin, Parak Aleph, Eicha where do you grace? Where are your cattle? Her metaphors are very pastoral. He, he's a prince. He doesn't inherit a pastoral landscape, he inherits a palatial landscape. He lives in Yerushalayim. And all of his metaphors are rich, classic, um, um, venerated. You're like a steed of Paro's army. What does she know from an army? She's never seen an army. But his entire context is military, royal, you can only imagine placing earrings and jewelry on your, on your cheeks. She probably doesn't own any jewelry. She probably owns a little necklace with a leather strap and possibly a, a goat's tooth, probably. It's a form, she's a little Bo Peep. And he's describing fancy jewelry that you'd buy to Stern. Not just jewelry, but gold and silver. She probably hasn't seen gold and silver her entire life. But that difference and that disparity is meant to capture 
the disparity between HaKadosh Baruch Hu, the infinite, unknowable, mysterious, and man, Jew, Am Yisrael, and so much of Shirashim was trying to bridge that gap, but the gap is almost unbridgeable, especially given the failures of man and the limitations of man. And that's why there's so much third-person reference. you think they'd be speaking to one another, forget location, but at least let them shout at one another, Hello! Please. They're speaking around one another. Yishakeni minashikos pihu. Not yishakeni minashikos picha, but please, his lips should kiss me. Kitovim dodecha miyayin. Ad shehamelech bimesibo. Pasuk yur alef. While the king, she's not talking to him, she's talking about him in third person. There was an aroma. We'll talk about that aroma later. My husband is like a, a bundle of, 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 of perfume. Ben Yalin. And that's why the distant communication is one of the devices in Shir Hashirim to convey the discrepancy between the husband and the wife, between HaKadosh Baruch Hu and Am Yisrael. They speak with one another at certain stages, they speak at a distance. Come to the garden, now join me. But it's still communication. It's still interactive. We'll see other devices that aren't even interactive. So, for example, the Pesukim I quoted before, they occur at a distance, but there's, there's response. So, for example, Pasuk Zayin at Perak Aleph, She speaks to her husband at a distance. Where can I find you? He answers. He's not there. But he answers, If you can't find me, follow the trail of the cattle and you'll find me. He actually very lovingly shifts into her metaphors. Doesn't describe a gold trail, but a cattle trail. It's very important to see when the metaphors and the imagery shift. So for example, We don't hear him speaking. I'll talk about this later, but at least she hears him speaking. She's the, she's the narrator. She's the person speaking, Kol Dodi Nezeba, Ana Dodi Viamarli. There's a response. Kol Dodi, Ana Dodi Viamarli. So, on the one hand, the first shift in the communication and the literary devices in Shir Shirim is the shift from direct communication to distant, disconnected. And in some ways, that distance, discrepancy, captures the core plot line. It's built in, the paradox between HaKadosh Baruch Hu and human beings, or the paradox between HaKadosh Baruch Hu and Am Yisrael, especially given their penchant for failures and for breakdown. The second shift is what I would call not distant communication, but deflected communication, where you speak to someone through a different person. So you may be standing next to that person, but you speak through another, you speak through a second party. And of course, as I mentioned before, the primary, secondary parties are these um, omnipresent Benos Yushalayim. They're always ascending the stage. As I mentioned before, literarily, they frame the four poems. Each of the four poems concludes with Hishbati Yashem Benos Yushalayim. But there's a lot of conversation directed at them. So let me highlight the three. For example, in the very beginning, Pasakei, Shechara Aniven Ava Benos Yushalayim. Right off the bat, she speaks to the Benos Yushalayim about the fact that she's blackened and she's darkened, which... Of course, in Shir Hashirim, is a pejorative. And then she expresses her needs. Tell me where I can find him. It's not clear whether she's speaking to him at a distance or speaking to Benos Yishalayim, but they're clearly a partial audience. Another deflected communication. I mentioned this earlier. Parakimol Pasik Vav. Mizos. Olamin Habidbar Kitimos Hashan Mikuteris Mor Levona 
Mikolav Kas Rochel. This isn't the woman speaking because she's the subject. It isn't the male because he's already in his Apirion, Pasek Tes, Asulah Melech Shlomo. He's sequestered in his uh, marriage bed. He's sequestered in his heavily fortified palace. There is someone, maybe it's the Benos Sion, it's not clear, but there's someone viewing her ascent from the desert, from Ein Gedi, towards Yushalayim, presumably, and they receive some information. And of course, the most prominent employment of deflected conversation is after the major breakdown, this is the major, major fault line of Shir Hashirim, called Odido Fake, the knock, the solicitation, direct, not illusion, not at a distance, she's lazy, she finally arises, Perak, and then he absconds, he disappears. She's left with the watchman. She meets the Benosi Yushalayim, Ishbati Yeschem Benosi Yushalayim. And then she's left to describe the profile of her husband, who, for whom she searches to these Benosi Yushalayim slash watchmen. So they tell her, Parakei Pasik Tes, Madodech Midov. Tell us about your husband. What does he look like? Where can we find him? What car does he drive? Caucasian? Asian? Give us some information. We'll put it in ABP, but we need to have some basic information. She launches into 10, 15 psukim describing her husband. So, not only is there distant communication, but there's also deflected communication. Again, capturing the offset and the disparity between the two. But that doesn't capture most of Shir Hashir. There is some communication, Hagidoli, they speak at distances. And I'll speak about that in a moment. Sometimes the conversation could be tagged to the second party spectators. But most of the conversation, there doesn't seem to be anyone listening. It's not apparent who they're speaking with. And this is one of the most dominant central devices of Shir Shir. It's known in literature as stream of consciousness. It was very popular in the late 19th and early 20th century. Many of you must have read James Joyce, Ulysses, possibly Notes from the Underground, Dostoevsky, and just trying to find reference points for those of you who've read some of these books. Virginia Woolf, Mrs. Dalloway, To the Lighthouse, Proust, Faulkner, William Faulkner, exactly. And I would describe stream of consciousness as an unrestrained flow of the characters, feelings, emotions, thoughts, impressions, auditory and visual responses or auditory and visual stimulants, unregulated by conventional conversation or structures. It's authentic. Try to place yourself not in the field of action, watching people's activities and perhaps questioning or hearing from the omniscient narrator their intent, but in the stream of consciousness that we all experience at the various levels of our conscious and subconscious. It's jagged. There are syntax leaps. And it appears that much of Shir Hashirim is written in this sense, primarily on the part of the woman's stream of consciousness. This, of course, is not my chiddush, Zeevanezer's chiddush, source number three. At the very beginning, Yishakeni Minashikos Pihu, source three. Divrei Hanara, Ke'ilu Tidaber Im she speaks internally to her soul. She doesn't speak to anyone. This is in a soliloquy. There's no communication. She speaks to her soul. Kol ta'avosah. Her entire longing. She should be embraced by her husband. 
She's unsatisfied, dissatisfied with only one encounter. She's longing for that husband. So much of Shira Shirim appears to be written in the stream of consciousness fashion. According to evidence, just she desires, she longs. She admits her own aroma. Um, if you take a look at um, Perak Bey's Pasa Gimel, King Dodi ben Habanim, excuse me, Bitsiloch, Manati, Veshavti, Koldodi, Nezeba, Midalegal, Herim, Kapetsa, like votes. It's hard to find listeners. It's hard to find the audience. You could tag it all to the Benos Sion, you could tag it all to the Benos Yushalayim, but they don't appear to be there, especially in the first two songs, two and a half songs. It appears that there's this unregulated, uninhibited stream of consciousness on the part of the woman. Even to the point, amazingly, and I'll return to this at the end of this year, Hibbenezus is an amazing concept. In his mind, the entire section is stream of consciousness. Or at least, listen to this, the Benosu Shalayim are imaginary friends. They don't exist. They're a psychological device for her looking for someone to talk to and vent. So that completely, completely reinvents the narrative of Shir Shir. No one's listening. The only Benos Yushalayim that are listening are in her mind. Source number 10, um, source number 11, excuse me. He repeats his original assertion that it's stream of consciousness. And she directs her attention to her friends. She's speaking to her own consciousness. They happen to be projected as Benos Yushalayim. She's bipolar. She's not bipolar. These are just the outlet, psychologically, for a direct conversation. And the question today, of course, is how does this literary device support or reinforce the content of Shir Shir? Not just that it's chosen, but why is it chosen? Why is there a divergence from classic omniscient narration or direct communication or even deflected or indirect communication? There's no communication. It's just stream of consciousness. What are the functions of stream of consciousness in Shira Shira? So I think you can identify four different functions. Number one, as I mentioned before, it reinforces the longing for HaKadosh Baruch Hu, who is just different and unreachable and indecipherable. And our reverence to HaKadosh Baruch Hu inhibits us from fully expressing our longing. Think of your own longing in life, the things you long for, the accomplishments, the, the people, the experiences. It's very deep. It's very overwhelming. Sometimes it's obsessive. And sometimes we have a hard time expressing them to others because they come across as aggressive or inappropriate. But they stream through our consciousness in a very powerful fashion. Our consciousness is dominated by our longings, our ambitions, our dreams, our hopes. So stream of consciousness is a wonderful device to capture uninhibited longing, uninhibited desire. It's called an interior monologue. There's an interior monologue within your own conscious, and you articulate the desires, the ambitions, the dreams, the people. And certainly if it's sometimes inappropriate or even ill-suited to express your longing to other people, Allah has come of a come when it comes to Baruch Many of us who live in Israel have seen a shifting of 
our relationship with our Kodesh Baruch Hu in the national religious world from a relationship of reverence and submission and fear and distance into a relationship of love and affection, familiarity, passion, because we feel like we're partnering with our Kodesh Baruch Hu in the final chapters of history. The exilic experience, Galos, is dominated by distance, unknowability, mystery, frustration, darkness. So in that world, we emphasize the unknowability of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. At this stage, many of us believe that we're partners with HaKadosh Baruch Hu and rebuilding this land and the institution that you are sitting in now in, in the West Bank and the Yudash Vishamron and Eretz Yisrael. Sometimes that can careen a bit out of control. So have you ever heard national Zionists or national Zionist-influenced people refer to Let's say their friends is achi, achi. And have you heard them refer to HaKadosh Baruch Hu as achi, achi? HaKadosh <laughs> Baruch Hu is not my brother. He's Malach Malachim Lachim. He's Gozer Mekai, Baruch Shamava Hayahola. So I, I welcome the fact in the Haredi world they don't have this challenge because essentially their whole mind space is still 1817. They're still in Poland and they're recreating a lifestyle that still basically reflects that exilic reality. In our world, it's a tremendous challenge. Have you seen uh, the Shulchan Aruch Paskins when you daven, you should daven more or less with your hands clasped in front of you like an Evel of Neirabo, perhaps with your hands folded. Who has seen Tatilu me, youngsters, daven like this? Your grandparents. <laughs> and they can only see the way their grandchildren and great-grandchildren daven. It's just a different mindset. There's a feeling of comfort with HaKadosh Baruch So stream of consciousness creates the device in which this longing can be very passionate, uninhibited, raw, and doesn't have to express itself. And if it would express itself, it would become restrained. There's a freedom and a latitude that stream of consciousness provides. And, and it, it allows for the longing to, to emerge. Let me give you a few examples. Um, this is especially... I think, blatant in the interaction between the husband and his wife because he rarely employs stream of consciousness. He's very direct, but she's always deflecting or thinking. It's very frustrating. So his only stream of consciousness is when he writes, That's probably... His only stream of consciousness. We'll get back to the husband at the end of this year. Just a little trailer. Does he even exist? The Benosu Shalim don't exist, and maybe he doesn't exist either. We'll see why that's so important. But in the second poem, he's very forward. He bounds over the mountains like a gazelle, like a deer. And then Parak Beis Pansakud Anna Dodivi Amarli Kumilach Rayasiya Fasil Chilach. Join me. Exit your your vineyard in Engedi. Let's travel together. Winter has passed. Summer is here. The trees are budding. The birds are chirping. Kolatar Nishmabi Artsenu. And then he likens his wife to a dove. Yonasi Bachagvi Asela Besesra Madrigos. And all he wants is to hear her voice. Such a powerful imagery. Because she's locked in stream of consciousness, which is not directed at him. He's in code silence. He's, he's in a silent chamber. And he explodes with this interest. He says, Hashmi'ini es kolech. And then he repeats it, just in case you didn't really, Ki kolech I want to hear your voice. Speak to me. 
not interested in whether you have these feelings and you're harboring them internally. Speak to me. And she doesn't even speak to him. She comes up with a lame excuse. I can't come now because the foxes are assaulting the vineyard. She then speaks to herself, we'll see why this is important in a moment. And then she sends a message to him, take a break, cool down a little bit, come back next season. Wait till the clouds disappear. Go back to the mountains and try again later. The contrast is just so prominent. And that phrase, that's a pivot, and we all recognize the phrase from the song, such a powerful description in light of the stream of consciousness. Hashvinias kolech. Don't talk to the Benos Yushalayim. Don't talk to yourself. Speak to me. And she can't bring her. He can't bring herself. She can't to speak with him. This is also powerful in the third poem. In the third poem, he's even more forward than in the previous poem. This is again the third poem, the poem of a very strange wedding as they appear to get married in the beginning of the poem. But then she wakes up and she sees him sequestered in the palace. So they're not really living together, even though they become married. There may be a break in the relationship. And then Perak Dalit begins. This is the middle of the third poem. Twice he invites her. So this is a direct invitation. Really the first two invitations to come to the palace. Other times they've been invited to travel the countryside. Nalina Bakvarin, Now he invites her. She's already his kala, so presumably he's inviting her home. And the end of Perak, at the end of beginning of um, <coughs> beginning of Perake, but it's the end of his description. We don't have to visit the countryside. Come to my garden. Come home. Let's eat together. And this is a very, very powerful invitation. There are three parts to this invitation. The first part is defined by landscapes. Constantly repeating the natural landscape, animals, the doves, your teeth are like a herd of goat, have descended from Har Gilad. Your teeth are like a herd that's all straight. You look like a desert in terms of the cleanliness. Very rich and lush description through nature and landscapes. Like two gazelles or two deer. The second part, which begins with Perak Dalit Pasiches, that's a section which is characterized by a lot of repetition. Every Pasuk has repetition, just for emphasis. So let's read the Psukim. Iti milavanon kala. Iti milavanon tavawi. Tashuri merosh amana. Meirosh sneer. Libavtini achosi kala. You've taken my heart. Libavtini. Ma yafu dodaich achosi kala. Matovu dodaich. Ma, ma. Dvash vechalav tachas lashonech. Vereach salmosayach. Kereach levanon. Every pasig has that repetition, this urgency and, and longing. Then the third section from, from Pasig Yud Beis through the beginning of Parakei is very aromatic. This is a section dominated by olfactory sense. There's a lot of senses here, primarily taste and smell. 
Shalachayich Pardes Rimonim and Primagadim, Nerd, Karkom, Kanek, Kinamon, Atse Levona, Mar, Halos, Samim, all spices and perfumes. And then the sense of smell translates into a sense of taste. Dvash Vechalav, Tachas, Lishonech. So he's very desperate. He's marshalling all of his poetry, all of his, all the weapons in his uh, toolbox. He's describing landscapes and animals and doves and smell and spy. Doesn't say a word. She's landlocked with the Pinocchio Yishalayim, landlocked in her own internal and interior monologue. And that's the first function of stream of consciousness. It reinforces the longing, it reinforces the distance, and it creates a framework in which the woman can long uninhibited. It's authentic, it's genuine, and there's a deep longing that sometimes is difficult to express and certainly would be somewhat irreverent to express. There's a second function. When do we conduct internal dialogues most or often? Think about your own stream of consciousness. When do you conduct make-believe conversations? Very often when we feel guilty, we have failed, and we try to acquit ourselves internally. We imagine people asking us questions. We imagine ourselves defending ourselves to others. I did it for this reason. I had this in mind. I tried my hardest. Because we're always fearful of being called in our own failures, and of course, we rarely are. But we have to prepare ourselves in our own self-defense. We have to exonerate ourselves. Stream of consciousness and Shira Shirin provides a tool for self-exoneration. Because it's a very, very sad, safer, of course, because it's not very sad, but there are sad moments. I'm darkened, I'm blackened, I've emitted a very, very foul odor, a very famous machlokus, perhaps the most famous machlokus about Shir Hashirim. Ad Shamelech b'mesibo, the king was still in his party chamber celebrating the marriage, near di nasan recho. I put out a, a smell. So that day in the base medrash, Rabbi Meir and Rabbi Huda had a disagreement about what smell that was. Rabbi Huda felt it was a favorable smell. It was the smell of Am Yisrael reciting Nasa Venishma, the sound of Am Yisrael, the smell of Am Yisrael, as it were, allegorically. Rabbi Meir said it was the stench of the eagle. Kedush Baruch was at Har Sinai, Atshem Melech Vimesibo, Nerdi Nasan Recho. We emitted that stench. And Rabbi Yehuda turned to Rabbi Meir and was, was exasperated. He said, Rabbi Meir, How could you, God forbid, interpret such a transcendent work disfavorably in a pejorative fashion? But if indeed Shir Shirim is an accurate depiction of our challenge relationship with Hashem nationally, then it has to both include these moments for historical authenticity, but also to demonstrate national resilience, how we recover from these moments. So there are various moments that are disfavorable, that are uncomfortable. But at every point, the woman internally, despite the fact that maybe her actions don't reflect her loyalty and some of her statements don't reflect that loyalty or that readiness, there's a self-assurance internally that despite my actions, I am still engaged in this relationship. And the most powerful self-assurance through stream of consciousness is that repeating line, which we all know from Shir Shir, it repeats itself three times. Remember, there are four poems. It doesn't repeat itself in the first poem because the first poem is still the preliminary stage. But in Perak Bey's Pasuk Tezayin, she responds to his solicitation, I can't come, the foxes are ruining the, the vineyard, whatever those foxes allegorically mean, the Egyptians, Dustin and Aviram, I can't respond. 
But then she says to herself, after she responds to him, she says, Dodi li vanilo We're still together. I'm still, we're still in this relationship. I may have been somewhat underwhelming in my response. Dodi li vanilo. And then remember after the terrible betrayal, and she's lazy, she emerges out of that chamber, her bed chamber, and the watchmen find her, as we discussed last year, and they abuse her, and they attack her, and they remove her crown. And she's left chasing her husband through the local police force. She comes up empty-handed. I know he may be distant. I may have failed him. First time Dodi Li Vanilo. Now she's a little more confident. Ani Li Dodi Vidodi Li. Then towards the end, we don't have time to fully elaborate, but now it's Parakzayin Pasagir Aleph. Ani Li Dodi Vilay Teshukaso. Namely, stream of consciousness doesn't just facilitate uninhibited longing. It also creates a framework for an internal self-acquittal. That despite the breakdown, despite the mutiny, despite the betrayal, though do leave Anilo. And Chazal sends this already in an earlier stage. Go back to the beginning. Shecharani Venava. This is Pasuk Hey. I'm black, but I'm also attractive. There's an equivocation. I may be blackened. Altiruni, Shani Shacharas. Don't blame me. It's not my fault. I've been attacked by my, my family members, wherever they may be. They placed me in charge of this vineyard. They couldn't even watch my own vineyard. So Chazal already sensed the self-acquittal latent within Shechara Nivinava. Source number four. We'll just read it very quickly and we'll talk about the overlapping nature of Shir Hashirim. I may be blackened by my behavior. I betrayed Akadosh Baruch But very attractive if you take the overall account. My, my ancestry, my, my, my history. Maybe my own eyes, I'm unattractive. But Akadosh Baruch still finds me attractive. The second, the next section. At the Yamsuf, we rebel based on Tehillim Kruvav. But Benavani Aliyam, there were still some redeeming moments. So there's a sense that the woman is struggling. On the one hand, she realizes the practical failures, but there's an internal, this interior monologue in which there's a self-assuring voice. And that's the second function of stream of consciousness. To create a sphere in which the woman tries to acquit herself. Then there's the third, then there's the third function. I mentioned before that Shir Hashirim is a book of Jewish history, and it necessarily has tragic moments, dark moments, frustrating moments, moments of betrayal. But the general tone of Shir Hashirim is very cheery, or at least the first two songs that we get to the night, and I'll describe the night a bit later. And the tone of Shir Hashirim is essentially a tone of nostalgia, in which we have a sentimental wistfulness for prior moments that are associated with happiness, that are associated with joy, 
describe nostalgia? How do you sense nostalgia for an earlier moment? Nostalgia generally is an emotion we sense internally. I tell, unfortunately, we embarrass ourselves when we share stories that trickle into our consciousness based on our nostalgia, especially in the eyes of our children. Stop telling me stories about. We feel a deep-seated association with that past, those past moments that caused us joy and associated with happiness. And we try to share it with others. Sometimes we flatline. They may be important to you. They may be exciting to you, but it's the 21st century. And stream of consciousness provides that framework to travel back in time and to relive those happy moments. I don't know if anyone here read James Joyce and Ulysses, but very often there's a nostalgic portal, an entry into the past that creates that ability to remember happier times. And that's the third function. There's a nostalgia for. Just imagine, compare Shir Hashirim to a nostalgic or an attempt at nostalgia in prose. Which is more powerful? It's descriptive. It's a bit poetic and it has its own role, but it can't in any way compete with this stream of consciousness that we eavesdrop on. This is the woman, Am Yisrael, living through this experience. We have a front row seat and we can long and yearn for those happy moments or those glorious moments of Jewish history. Now, astoundingly, Rashi adopts this perspective, but he adds another layer. And this is an incredible shift. And if you read through Rashi, like you're reading through Rashi, you won't catch it. <laughs> it's actually read the Rashi carefully, but it reconstitutes the entire section. So let's read Rashi together carefully. Ari, maybe is it possible to turn on the air a little bit? Thanks. Is anyone else a little bit toasty? Okay, okay. So like we're recreating En Gedi. Chili, toasty. Okay. Source number six, Rashi. Yishakeni minashikos pihu. Again, let me set the stage of how we read Shi'ar Shi'ar and pre-Rashi. Please, everyone looks. I want to try to help you visualize it. Look at my hands. There's the woman experiencing all these bygone moments in Jewish history. And the audience eavesdrops on that woman. So we can taste nostalgia by traveling back in time through the mind and eyes of Am Yisrael. Let's assume it's a national trajectory, national narrative experiences. So there's two layers according to, Rashi, according to the simple reading. Rashi adds a third layer. Rashi writes, Zehashir, Omeris Befiat, being articulated by whom? Not the woman undergoing this romance and this courtship. Begalusa uvi almanusa. This is being spoken by a Jewish woman or the Jewish people after they've been exiled, after they've been expelled, longing for those moments and reliving those moments. So there are three layers. Namely, there's the woman or Am Yisrael who underwent that experience during Yitzhak Mitzrayim. There's the widowed woman, the almana, who is desperately clinging to those moments through her nostalgia. And then the audience taps in to a woman waxing nostalgically about a previous time. So there are three layers in Rashi. We don't tap into someone living through the experience and generate our own nostalgia. We tap into a nostalgic experience. We tap in. Generations of Jews will read this story. Shlomo doesn't write it in the mindset of the Jewish people living through Yitzhak Mitzrayim, the Midbar, Eretz Yisrael, the Beis HaMikdash. 
He's writing, as it were, through the mind space of a 12th century Spanish Jew, or more appropriately, a 15th century Spanish Jew, or a 17th century Polish Jew. And then when I read in the 21st century, I'm tapping into that Jew's reading. The voice of Shir Shirim is not even a biblical voice. It's an exilic voice. It's a voice in exile. Longing. So the voice is not just that I have to bring nostalgia to the read. I'm living through her experience, the experience of Am Yisrael, and for me it's nostalgic. The entire report is encased in nostalgia, and I tap into that. So it's a three-layered interaction. A woman, let's say a, a Jew caught in Gullus, is reading Shir Hashirim, remembering past glories, and then the subsequent reader taps into that prior reading. And that's the third function of stream of consciousness. The first function is it allows uninhibited longing, which may be inappropriate to express overtly and certainly to the Melech Malchim Lachim. The second function of stream of consciousness, it facilitates an internal acquittal. Ta-da, ta-da. An internal acquittal. The third, it creates a framework for nostalgia. The fourth function of stream of consciousness is that it blends the timelines. Prose possesses very, very rigid and inflexible timelines. More often than not, dictated either by the action or dictated by the omniscient narrator. It was Sunday, June 24th, when Mr. walked to the store and met his... Many seasons had passed. Think of your own stream of consciousness. All of our timelines are blurred. Sometimes it frustrates us when we can't think of our past in clearly, chronologically segmented fashion. This is when I reach that trait or this awareness or this. It's a kaleidoscope of time and periods and experiences and thoughts and impressions. Sometimes there's a collision between the past and the future, between our experiences and our hopes. But clearly there's no timing in our stream of consciousness. The timing is completely, completely blurred or blended. And this is absolutely crucial to Shir Hashirim. Shir Hashirim is one of the only books in Tanakh which isn't pivoted based on a particular historical period. There are no historical events in Shir Hashirim that help us determine when it was written. Of course, Shlomo drafts it so we can date it based on Shlomo. But the events described have no time tag, as we have in Tanakh, Bishnas Mos, or Bishnas Shalosh, Lamal Chusov, Think of the opening to Devarim. We have a clear sense of when it occurred and where it occurred. We're lost. And there's great debate, for example, the classic read, I mentioned the four poems before, the classic read of Rashi and the Targum is that the first two poems describe Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, the third poem describes the two Bate Mikdash, the fourth poem, the Messianic Era. The Ramban, the Medrash, certain Midrashim take a different view. First poem is Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. Second poem is the experience in the Midbar per se. Third poem, the temples and the destruction of the base of Mitzrayim. The fourth poem, Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. But that's exactly it. Successful, powerful poetry creates illusions, metaphors, and imageries that are elastic enough to absorb multiple layers of meaning in a complementary fashion. True poetry is not meant to be descriptive or definitive. True poetry is meant to be ambiguous, thought-provoking, and to invite multiple layers of coexistent readings. And it's absolutely true in Shir Hashir. Is Rashi right? Is the Ramban right? Both right. Because that's just it. There's a historicity to, to Jewish history 
And one of the fundamental differences between the Western view of history and the Jewish view of history is that Western civilization views history as evolutionary, progressive, transcending prior limits and restraints. And Judaism views history as circular with an inevitable terminus and not just circular but cyclical and repetitive. And the patterns of history repeat in Zechariah Olam, Binu Shinoz Dar Vador, you can learn from the past, not just because you garner wisdom from people's mistakes, those who don't learn from the past are faded to... Because the same patterns repeat. And that's why stream of consciousness is so crucial, because there's no timing. And if there were a narrator who told us where this happened and who spoke to whom we'd expect him or her to provide the framework, where was it, when did it... There's a blending and a blurring of timelines. Let me give you two examples. Probably the most dramatic. I've mentioned this several times because it's probably the most familiar. Cold dodito fake. The husband comes knocking. The woman doesn't answer. I discussed this last year. She finally arises to welcome him and he disappears. What does that refer to? When did our Kaddish Baruch Hu come knocking? And when was our response underwhelming? So most popularly, overwhelmingly, it was Shivat Zion. Ezra's call to the Jewish people in diaspora, the Jewish people only 42,000 return. Have we all arisen, the Gemara and Megillah says, as a wall, have we all entered Eretz Yisrael like a wall? We would have celebrated a silver-laced redemption. Since we only ascended like a door, so the decorations were wooden and they could easily be burnt by the Romans. The underwhelming response during the days of Ezra Kodesh Baruch knocks, Ezra invites, and we're too lazy in Bavel to respond. Famously, Rabbi Soloveitchik's Sefer, called Odi Dofeg, he saw this as a gloss for what we're living through, Medina Israel. Where in 1948, Kodesh knocked on our door, invited us back, and it seems as if we're doomed to repeat some of those failures because we're not responding enthusiastically enough. And certainly if we responded more enthusiastically, we feel the redemption would cycle more rapidly and less painfully. Who's right? Rabbi Yudal Levi or the Rav? Well, I'm a Talmud of the Rav, so... <laughs> They're both right. It's the same pattern. It's the exact same sequencing. There's no difference between Ezra... I mean, obviously, there are secondary anecdotal differences. Ezra spoke probably Babylonian, Aramaic, and <laughs> Rabbi Salvatric spoke Yiddish, but... But it's the same pattern. Another example where, where the, uh, the husband announces, Anna Dodivi Amarli. He doesn't just announce, but there's double announcement. Anna Dodivi Amarli. Kumilach Rayasi. Please come out with me. Ulechilach. Kineastavavar. Winter has passed. Who's speaking? And there, there are endless examples. I, would, I could give you for the rest of the day and not even scratch the surface. I just wanted to pick two examples that are most, that not obvious, but at least transparent. So take a look, please, at um, source number seven. Ana Dodivi Amarli. Who are these two people that call the Jews to action? Line two. Ana Ide Moshe Ve Moshe and Aaron are calling us into Eretz Yisrael. Our parsha. Line number three. Elo Midbar. We're finally being called to Eretz Yisrael. Dabaracher. Line number three. Ezra. The two. This dynamic duo of announcers of Daniel and Ezra calling us back to Eretz Yisrael, and of course, come back from Babel. Elu shivim shana shasu Yisrael v'agola. Three lines from the bottom. Ana yidei It's a prescient, it's a prediction, foreshadowing for the calling 
suffuses all of Shir Hashirim. Chazal can't make up their mind, whether it's the Midbar or Shoftim or the Beisam, because it's all the same. It's all the same moral, historical, religious challenge to bridge that unbridgeable gap between limited man and flawed, failed Jewish experience and the endless expectations of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And it's just a repeating cycle. I'm just trying to create reference points for some of you who've read the work. Has anyone ever read Mrs. Dalloway by Virginia Woolf? In that book, there's a clear blending of time. You have no clue where you are and what the chronology is. Just like in our consciousness. We have no sense when we're in a stream of consciousness. Sometimes, again, it frustrates us. When did that happen? When did I achieve this? And when you look back at your past and there's this large, incohate, nebulous sense of growth. And when did that happen? And then sometimes we have these indices that help us. We hear a song and we can tag, oh, I was 25 when I heard the song, or for, male, for men's sporting events, or hopefully for Lamir Chacham and that Rashba, that tells us there are time indices, but essentially we live. A stream. And those are the four functions of stream of consciousness. So let's re- review before we study the fourth literary shift in Shir Hashir. We would have expected direct communication. That would have been our expectations. Had I been tasked with authoring Shir Hashirim, would have written a dialogue between husband and wife. Doesn't exist. There's disconnected, detached dialogue. Hagidali, where will you graze? Imlo tedilach banashim, follow the ikve hatzon, tzilach bikve hatzon. Kol dodi, hinezeba, midalegal harem, ano dodi vi amarli. So there's some distant, disconnected conversation. The second shift is deflected conversation. The omnipresent benos tzion, ascending the stages, the, the spectator, mizos olam min hamidbar, who is that woman? She receives. Senor Anna Benos Tzion, she speaks to the Benos Tzion, Bamelach Shlomo, Batarash, Lemabim Chesanosov, Yosim Chaslibo. And of course, that long conversation with the Shomrim slash Benos Tzion after she has betrayed and her husband has absconded, has, has fleed. Those two primarily capture the core drama of Shirashirim, the unbridgeable distance between the Melech Machayim Lachim, immortal and eternal and human convention and, of course, national experience. They live in different areas. They employ different metaphors. She's a country bumpkin. He's a palatial king. She lives in Engedi. He inhabits Yerushalayim. But primarily, we're exposed to a stream of consciousness. As the Ebenezer noted, she speaks to her heart, Medabert im nafsha, and that stream of consciousness facilitates four different themes or four different elements of Shir Shir. Number one, uninhibited longing. Number two, internal acquittal. Number three, nostalgic wistfulness. And number four, blended timelines. And then there's a fourth literary, irregular literary device. And that, of course, represents the second part of our share, which we'll finish rather quickly. Nighttime dreams. It appears as if there are two dreams in Shir Hashir. One is embedded in the second song, Pasuk Aleph Perakimol Al Mishkavi Balelos Bikashti Eshahavanafshi. It's not clear whether she's dreaming, but she's lying on her bed, Al Mishkavi Balelos. So it's a dream, trans, hallucination. She's half asleep, but she isn't sitting at her desk at her office writing an email to her husband. And then Parake Pasuk Bays 
Ani yeshena, now she's not just sleepless on her bed, she's actually sleeping. Ani yeshena v'libier kol dofek. So she's sleeping, but she's awake. So just in case you're keeping score, the Ebenezer once again reminds us, source 10, Hapam ha'shenis ha'yiserah b'chalom v'zeon yana mishkavi balilos. So the Ebenezer reminds us that not only is Ani yeshena v'libier a dreamlike thought process, but so is amishkavi balilos. So for our purposes, they're dreams, they're dreamlike trances. So now there's a double layer of exposure. We're not just exposed to stream of consciousness, we're exposed to stream of consciousness while we're dreaming. A woman dreaming is stream of consciousness. Why is that important? So first of all, just the shift from daytime to night is crucial. Forget the fact that it's a dream. This is a dramatic, dramatic shift in optics from the beginning of Shir Hashirim, which is radiant and ebullient and resplendent with color and splash and smell and animals and the buds and the sounds of the birds chirping. Now it's the dead of night. And much of the remainder of Shir Hashirim, until the conclusion, takes place at night. Why is night important? First of all, because as we progress through Shir Hashirim, the honeymoon shifts into the betrayal Again, various timelines of betrayal, the Egel, the Miraglim, the period of the Shoftim, the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash. So there's a sinister element. I don't have time to describe this at length, but essentially the failures of the of Amisol, of the woman in the beginning, basically she's immature, the foxes are ravaging, my brothers and sisters have ruined the vineyard. And then that immaturity, she's not yet ready to meet HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Excuse, excuse the Egel, they're a weak band of slaves, their imagination are limited, they fear Moshe Rabbeinu's departure. And then real betrayal based on mikdash, laziness, so the optics play an important role in that shift from an innocent, pastoral, rustic girl who happens to be a little immature, she's intimidated by her king who resides in the palace with his gold and silver and trinkets, she barely owns jewelry and now it's night. Now it's Gullus. And Chazal read this, I don't have time to, to cite Chazal. Second of all, the second aspect of night is not just introducing a sinister element, but it's also reminding us of the at least the self-perceived vulnerability. That night creates fear and uncertainty and panic and who will. And that's also part of her own internal self-acquittal. She somehow says, I can't come, it's night, I'm scared. So let's just eavesdrop on Chazal, interpreting the night as a framework to help her justify, help her exonerate her behavior. Source number eight, it's the night of Egypt. This is the, the first dream, so to speak. I'm looking for Moshe. This doesn't appear in Sefer Shemos. The Jews are in a panic. They're running through the streets of Egypt. Where's Moshe? Remember, in Sefer Shemos, the Jews are landlocked in their homes, eating carbon pesach. It's Parah who's running, terrified through the streets of Egypt. This is historical revisionism, which we'll talk about in a moment. Akumana, where's Moshe? I find Shevet Levi. Finally, I find Moshe. The same panic exists in Source 9. Now it's describing not the scene in Egypt, Source 9. Amishkavi Balilos, Batsarli Shashafti, Afela Kosh Loshimishmonashana. We're in the darkness, radio silence in the desert, 38 years. Hashem didn't respond to us. Ah, oh, finally, Matsoni Hashemrim, I found Moshe in Aaron. Have you found Hashem? Can you help me find Hashem? 
And Hashem, finally, the Shomri, Moshe and Aaron, help us find HaKadosh Baruch Hu, and they bring us ultimately to Shiloh, to this wedding rendezvous with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. So before we discuss the dreams, the night provides two elements, just the nighttime setting. Regardless of the literary trope or the literary device for conveying information, the night connotes a sinister element of betrayal. It also connotes the vulnerability, or at least the perceived vulnerability, of this um, disobedient nation, disobedient woman. Or not disobedient, at least uh, unresponsive. But there's no question that dreams are important. And the dreams facilitate three things. Number one, mentioned this before. As unrestrained a stream of consciousness is, unregulated, jagged, authentic, dreams are even more unrestrained because we don't have our conscience or our ration suppressing our true desires. So there's an eruption and a fury in our dreams emotionally that expresses our longings that can't be captured in conscious thought, even in stream of consciousness thought. And you sense this very, very clearly in the first dream. Look at how many times the word ahava occurs in these very, very tightly packed sentences. Eight, shahava nafshi. Avaksha, pasuk beis. Eight, shahava nafshi. Mitzoni ashamri masoavim ba'ir. Eight, shahava nafshi re'item. Kemak shavarti mehem achematsati. Eight, shahava nafshi. Four psukim, each dominated by the term Ahava. But it's not just, and remember, that term doesn't appear that often, certainly in the voice of the woman. She's incapable of expressing her Ahava in a conscious state, even in her internal monologue. Al mishkavi bikashti, not just the love, but the search. Bikashtiv, number two, which is a synonym for bikashtiv. avaksha, Number three, Eshavah Nafshi. Bikashtiv. Number four, Velo Mitzativ. Kemat Shemat Me'ashem Matzati. Eshavah Nafshi. So there's a level of Ahava and Bikush that she, again, because of her immaturity, because of her timidity or appropriate decorum in the face of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, is not going to express this, certainly to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Just think of your own relationship with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Would it be appropriate for you to walk around all day and tell HaKadosh Baruch Hu how much you love him? You do, but it, just, it would feel as if there's, there's a sense of hierarchy and, and decorum in that relationship and too much of the terms that we describe our human loves by maybe too forwarding and irreverent to HaKadosh Baruch as much as we feel it and sense it. That's number one. The second device for dreams is that dreams allow us to all be historical revisionists. Right? We all the time dream and we relive our experiences, but we revise them. We're all superheroes in our dreams, chasing the bad guys, <laughs> escaping from the villains. And they're loosely based on our experiences, but they're revised in some cases favorably, in some cases terrifyingly, but they very rarely are an accurate rendition of what we've actually experienced. They're loosely based, loosely based on the book of life, but it's a whole different movie, as we know. And there is a lot of historical revisionism, so I'm to make sure that I'm keeping the correct time, Till 10.50, right? Oh, I'm sorry. A lot of historical revisionism in Shir HaShirim, so I'll skip this. I'll be very quick. So, for example, all that initiative taken during the night of Mitzrayim 
We're not aware of it. As far as we're concerned, during Yitzhak Mitzrayim, the Jews were very passive. They were very frightened. They waited for Moshe to redeem them, that to be yanked away. But all the scurrying, where's Moshe? That description of, I'll hold on to my lover until, uh, to my husband until I reach an, a chastivalar, penu, pasik dalit, achavisivo, basimivil, cheder, arsit, we have that marriage, and Chazal interpret this as Shiloh. Shiloh? Are you kidding me? That was a happy marriage in Shiloh? The Jews were rampant paganists. Shiloh was a very dark period, the Shoftim. Those of Shiloh is everything it's cracked up to be, but in their dreams, it's a marriage. In their dreams, it's a wedding. So the dreams allow historical revisionism. The third aspect, since I only have two minutes left, and I'll skip the Ravamitel story for now. The third aspect is, of course, dreams are fleeting. They vaporize quickly. And certainly that first dream where she dreams that she's married, she then wakes up and she's distant from her husband and he's sleeping in his palace. Shishim Gibar Gibari Yisrael, fortified to the tooth, and she isn't granted admittance. Well, aren't they married? Well, they were married, but it passed like a dream. And they were married, and Am Yisrael sinned in the Egel Hazav, and they were married, and the Beis Hamidrash was destroyed, and only these Kachalom Yaof Kitzel of Novel. And those are the three functions of a dream. Number one, unmitigated passion. Number two, historical revisionism. Number three, fleeting experiences. I'll just conclude with 20 seconds just to tip you off. Food for thought. The Ebenezer reminds us, if you remember, a half an hour ago, that the Benos Yushalayim are imaginary friends. They're just projections of this woman. So she provides most of the conversation, and they're just parts of her imagination that render it easier for her to communicate. Well, then ask yourself, maybe the husband's also imaginary. Maybe the conversation of this woman is her hearing her husband's voice. And there are several times where, almost all times, where his conversation is prompted by her. Who's speaking? She is. So she's the one who's doing the speaking. One more quick example. Um, she's the one reporting that her husband's knocking and then he launches into his... There's really only one section, Parak Dalid, in which he seems to speak in an unprompted fashion. But most of the time he speaks, either prompted by the woman or prompted by the Benos Yushalayim, which are going to be Ebenezer, as just her imaginary friends. So she effectively is prompting the husband to speak. Except for Parak Dalid, it's not clear. Could it be that the husband doesn't exist, or at least isn't the speaker? It's completely an internal conversation. Why would that be important? Because our conversation with HaKadosh Baruch Hu really is internal. Hashem doesn't speak to us. We create that conversation with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Especially, according to Rashi, in a period of Galas, where you're nostalgically yearning for a moment. When's the last time Hashem spoke to you? In an overt, revelationary fashion. It's been thousands of years. But we all have that conversation with HaKadosh Baruch Hu because we allow Him to enter our mind space and we conduct that conversation. So a story attempting to capture the conversation between human beings and Am Yisrael and HaKadosh Baruch Hu maybe is just one imagined conversation which reflects our imagined conversation with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Those are the irregular literary devices of Shir Shirim, disconnected conversation, deflected conversation, stream of consciousness, dreams. And somehow this very unique work is 
supported by the shift in the literary techniques. Everyone enjoy the rest of your day.